Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by my old friend Michael Swain. Michael is now the director of the Quincy Institute's East Asian Program, one of America's most prominent scholars on China's security studies. We all know him, of course, now in his new role, but we all know him from his two decades at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he was the senior fellow specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy. The reason he's joining us today is he has just uh, written a paper called Threat, Inflation, and the Chinese Military. And for those who focus on US-China relations, it is absolutely a must read. Uh, it is not the consensus view, but it is a view that absolutely is so important for uh, both the Congress, the executive branch, and the American people to understand. I know people have not, many people watching this have not read it. So why don't we start, Michael, with uh, your summarizing the thesis of the paper. Great, well, thank you very much, Steve. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity and good to see you again uh, to do these uh, interviews. Well, the paper I've written is, it's longer than just a regular paper, 30, 35 pages. It's about hundred pages as it turned out. I didn't intend it to be that long, but it just worked out that way. Um, it was originally going to be part of a four-part study that looked not just at the military, but also other elements of U.S.-China relations and threat inflation. Hopefully, I'll be able to do those in the future. But this paper looks very much at the military issues. And it, it really uh, makes an argument that, first of all, threat inflation and the propensity to inflate threats, particularly national security threats, are kind of built in, wired in to the thinking of political leaders and other elites in society, as well as publics. So I, I have a first section that really looks at the whole question of threat perception and threat inflation in general terms. And it makes several observations that you know, there are different reasons, psychological, bureaucratic, personalistic, other things that leaders tend to inflate threats. They tend to worst case different situations. So you have that kind of uh, disposition to begin with. Now I don't directly link up cause and effect with, with a particular phenomenon in the general sense, and a specific China threat. But the context, I think, that uh, for viewing this is really important. So I, I really lay that out. Now, the second thing I do is I, I go into and say, well, you know, what is the United States saying about China and the Chinese military? And by the US, I don't mean just the US government, but American analysts outside the government, academics, et cetera. And although I found that there are some balanced viewpoints in various areas, including in parts of the government, in general, there is a really strong and consistent tendency to inflate the size, the scope, the nature of the military threat that China poses to the United States and more broadly, China's objectives. Simple example is a recent statement made by uh, Secretary of State Blinken in his uh, recent address on the Ch US Ch uh, strategy toward China, where he said, quote, China has announced its ambition to create a sphere of influence in the Indo-Pacific and to become the world's leading power. Uh, no Chinese leader has ever made such a clear statement. Uh, there is no clear statement such as that in the Chinese record. 
Uh, you can interpret different kinds of comments that are made, translating them into English in that way, but that would not be an accurate or necessarily a correct translation of what the Chinese have been saying. Another example, politicians like Mitt Romney have said that the United States poses a dire existential threat to the United States. Literally, what does that mean? That means a threat to the very existence of our nation, our people, our way of life, our territory, etc. I think that is a vastly inflated uh, sense of what the threat is that China poses. Um, China is not about to be able to obliterate the United States, certainly not militarily, unless it's suicidal. Um, it doesn't have the conventional capabilities to do that, not even close. Um, and its economic power, when you measure it against both the United States and other Western industrialized and Asian industrialized powers, certainly is not overwhelming to the degree where it could be itself, place itself in a position where it existentially could undermine or overthrow uh, the U.S. economy, destroy the U.S. economy, et cetera. So you've got uh, many of these cases of threat inflation that, that you can see that go on uh, in various ways. So what I, what I say basically is that we have to get a better handle on what we're dealing with with China uh, because threat inflation is not a, a uh, benign thing. Some people think, well, it's better to inflate the threat than it is to under, underestimate the threat because it's better to be safe than sorry. But in fact, threat inflation can be just as bad, if not worse, than underestimating the threat for a variety of reasons. Um, it tends to create a dangerous, vicious circle in which each side reacts to inflated threat perceptions with excessive military buildups and overreactions to real and imagined challenges. It can be manipulated by, oppor by opportunistic individuals and politicians, creating undue alarm among the public, creating various types of witch hunts, uh, things that really can distort the political systems within the governments. It can also divert attention in the public and among elites from important other issues that require focus and resources. In fact, in some cases, probably greater resources and attention than looking at a potential threat from China, such as climate change, for example, uh, transnational threats that affect all of us. So there's a lot of danger in overestimating uh, a threat such as China. And, and finally, I, I end up by saying that we really need to have, we need to get a grip. We need to, first of all, stop the demonization on the rhetoric, uh, really bound and base our statements about what China is and what China isn't in facts, in assessments that look at hard, cold facts about what we know and what we don't know. And if we don't know something or it's ambiguous, we should say so. That doesn't mean that it's not necessarily true, that there isn't a threat there, but Simply assuming there is and acting on that basis, I think is irresponsible. So I think we need to be much more careful about doing that. And I think we should do that in a way that leads to efforts to try to engage more deeply with the Chinese, with our allies, to try to establish some kind of stable understandings, middle ground in areas, have certain types of bounds where you have productive, constructive competition, not all zero sum, and not certainly based on demonization or a victory of one side or the other, which I don't think is ever going to happen. It's gonna be a long process, both positive and negative in dealing with China. And we have to be able to sort that out and define clearly where we have threats, where we have challenges and where we have opportunities to deal with China. And I think all of those things are really not being done currently. We're in a phase now in the United States where we're still sort of 
being alarmed to the kind of threat that China might pose. And most of the rhetoric that's coming out of Washington just focuses on that and that alone. And I think that is dangerous for the future. And that's a fabulous summary of what is over a hundred page uh, you know, monograph on this subject. Um, fair to say your view is a minority view in the policy community and the government? Um, in the policy community, it probably is, in cer certainly in parts of the White House. Um, it, it probably is um, in, in parts of the think tank community where there there's a tendency to go along with the predominant policies in, in the administration. Um, but I shouldn't say that you know this. I'm a lone voice out there in the wilderness. Uh, there are quite a few people I know, including China specialists, who look at these issues very seriously and have done so for many years, have a very strong familiarity with the Chinese language, who also share my concern about misinterpreting, misunderstanding, and distorting uh, what China's threat and concern is while overlooking some of the advantages or opportunities that we have or the necessities that we have to work with the Chinese. I think those people also do exist in parts of the State Department. And even I would say there are people in the Pentagon who don't simply sign on to this very extreme zero-sum kind of, the Chinese are going to eat our lunch, they're coming to get us, they're dominant, they, 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 they outmatch us militarily now or are about to do so, or they're about to attack Taiwan. Um, I think there are, are people within the Pentagon even who are more circumspect about these issues. But I would certainly not say that my view um, is the mainstream in Washington. Why do you think so many have gotten it wrong? Well, I think partly it's because, as I said earlier, Steve, there is a general tendency to inflate threats. And, and the administration today and the previous administration is in a situation where uh, the United States is facing a lot of challenges, both domestic and foreign. It's putting a lot of pressure on leaders and on the publics, and it's producing a sense of insecurity. And that sense of insecurity, I think, plays right into a tendency to look for sources of the uh, instability and the threats and the concerns that we have. Now, I hasten to say, I'm not saying China is not a threat. We shouldn't be thinking about this at all. They're not a worry. They are, in certain significant ways, they are threatening to the United States, or at least to potentially to American values and to certain American interests as defined at this time by the United States. But I think people just generally have a tendency to lean in this direction of inflating threats. And we also have a tendency, unfortunately, historically, that goes back to the Cold War era, um, if not earlier, of taking certain types of movements, ideological movements, and inflating what they are about, what the implications they are for the United States, and so what the kind of threat that they pose to the United States. And I think we see a lot of that now as people tend to boil China down to a simple question of the Chinese Communist Party led by a, a clear ideology of world domination, you know, the kind of resonance that we heard during the 1950s about the Cold War, where China, in fact, is quite a different phenomenon from the Soviet Union in those days. There's some who, and the, the paper touches on it, but doesn't dig down that deep. There's some who, who benefit from the threat inflation, whether it's folks who want additional budget or weapons providers or uh, service providers to DOD without a real, I mean, Russia's a nation state uh, adversary, but it's China is much bigger, stronger, 
with much more, with much longer potential. How much of this should we credit to what Eisenhower would have called the military industrial congressional complex? How much of this is because people benefit? Well, this is always a hard question to answer, Steve. I mean, I'm, I'm not somebody who tends to reflexively say, oh, you're, you're a, you're a uh, member of the defense industrial complex, therefore your views are X, Y, and Z. I think it's more complex than that. However, I do think that there is a general propensity um, among uh, different groups who are engaged in legitimate economic and commercial concerns that are involved in national security to have a very heightened sensitivity to what that national security is, to look for the worst case examples of what the threats are to national security, and then to try to develop solutions to those worst case threats. That's kind of their job to a certain degree, just as it is with some people in the Pentagon. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the United States should be driven by their assessments, that it should always accept the worst case assessment as the only case, or that it should develop a policy that assumes the worst case is going to come true. But I do think that we do have a system in the United States that is very much of a kind of a national security state in which we have built-in incentives to maintain relatively high defense budgets and to find different types of threats that we can apply those defense budgets to. Now that's varied over time in our history and it wasn't so true uh, in the past centuries, but it has certainly been the case, very evident since the end of the Cold War and is evident today. And I should say that um, our defense spending does not really track with inflation. People are saying today, well, inflation is going up, so we have to keep spending in defense spending. U.S. has spent high numbers, high, high amounts of money on defense, whether inflation was high or inflation was low. It tends to be driven by other factors, which is partly these bureaucratic interests, political interests, partly senses of ideological threat, as I said before. It's a range of different things, but this issue of bureaucratic and, and other types of economic and political interests are certainly there. Look at, the, look at the constituencies. Almost every state in the country, if not every state, has defense jobs. And those defense jobs are very important to the people who hold them and the politicians who represent those people. They don't want to jeopardize those defense jobs. So they would certainly want to have a vibrant defense sector that continues to serve uh, the interests of their constituents. That's a built-in tendency towards um, relatively high levels of defense spending in the United States. The paper, and you had made mention of kind of US actions that contribute to this. You don't really talk very specifically about that. What kind of actions has the United States taken that contribute to what then becomes a threat, uh, you know, the, the, the in threat inflation? I think the United States has taken actions that have been unnecessarily provocative in some ways. And in the military sphere, I would say that one of them is that the US has based to a great extent its position in Asia on the idea that only American primacy, only American military primacy can preserve the stability and the prosperity of the region. And that the American hub and spokes alliance system uh, essential to that is essential to that primacy. And they all have to be sustained sort of ad infinitum in order to maintain stability, particularly in the, in the face of a rising China. The problem is, this is not possible. Um, this situation is changing very significantly. The Chinese have, by and large, 
in order to eliminate their own vulnerabilities and sense of insecurity, they have essentially removed American primacy, ended American primacy along their own Asian Latour, along their own coastline, out to approximately a thousand nautical miles or more. And so we have to be able to deal- A thousand with nautical miles from China's coast? Sure. Do you think they, they, have pri they have primacy? You know, uh, no, no, I'm not saying that the Chinese have primacy. I'm saying that they have reduced America's freedom of action, America's sheer, sure confidence that it has primacy I see. along its maritime periphery. The reality of the situation is that neither China nor the United States have military primacy in the Western Pacific. That situation is likely to continue for some time. I don't believe the United States or Japan or other nations will sit still and just allow China to become an overwhelming military force in the Western Pacific. There's going to be a kind of balance. It needs to be made into a stable balance. In my paper, I argue that although China has certainly increased very significantly its military capabilities in the Western Pacific, they are not what I would regard as overwhelming. And so the United States needs to deal with that reality, not by just simply trying to double down on defense spending and stay ahead of the Chinese, which I think will be futile and I think will cost us too much and take away from other needed applications of our resources. I think we need to be able to establish some better degree of understanding with the Chinese. It's not based on primacy, but the primacy issue is, is critical and I think it needs to be reassessed. And we at, at the Quincy Institute had just come out with a study talking about what is an alternative force posture for the United States and the Western Pacific that doesn't rely on primacy. And it's not gonna cost the earth to put into place either. Uh, we don't have to have continued increases in defense spending um, to be able to make that uh, a, a reality. Um, and so I think that's one area where the United States needs to re really reassess its, its position. Uh, the other one is it needs to really take a serious look at its policy regarding Taiwan. As U.S.-China relations have become more, more um, tense and, and, and more uh, adversarial in many ways, uh, the Taiwan issue has become a greater and greater issue between the two countries. And there, both countries have fallen into a kind of pattern of doubling down on deterrence, military-based deterrence, or sharp words or you know, signals of resolve and very little in the way of trying to establish or, or retain a level of reassurance, a kind of reassurance that existed for decades between the US and China regarding Taiwan. And that reassurance rested upon a one China policy by the US and a Chinese commitment to continue to seek peaceful unification as a top priority. Right now, both sides believe the other side is undermining that priority and undermining that position. And the United States, I have to say as one of these two, the United States is adding to that. Um, it is beginning to talk about Taiwan like it's a strategic asset to be denied China because it fits into the larger strategic plan of maintaining American dominance in the Western Pacific, et cetera. That kind of a language, that kind of a new perception towards Taiwan as a independent strategic entity is spells really the death knell of the one China policy. It will end that policy. And the Chinese will certainly not see the United States as still retaining that policy if it holds that Taiwan is a strategic asset to be held from, from China. So the US needs to unequivocally 
state that it does not regard Taiwan in that way, that it remains open to any resolution of the Taiwan problem in either direction as long as it's done peacefully and without coercion. Isn't that what we've said? Isn't that, I mean, you know, that, that even, you know, Blinken in his speech, which you mentioned, said, uh, we do not support Taiwan independence. Uh, we, we still, you know, Sullivan, Blinken, Austin have all stated that we continue to support the one China, one China policy that's been in existence now for 50 years. Um, are the Chinese not misinterpreting this? I think the Chinese don't believe there's a whole lot of credibility behind those statements. They tend to be made, um, they've been made more assertively in response to pressure from the outside, the administration has said these things, than they had been earlier. Um, there had been a stronger degree of emphasis in the administration in talking about moving Taiwan closer to the United States. Certain officials will now be allowed to go to Taiwan that weren't in the past. Um, there's talk now about Taiwan becoming uh, more like an ally in uh, military exercises with the United States. These things are not policy, but they are, they are being talked about in Washington, near the government, and the government, I believe, does not clearly enough reject these things. Um, a good example was the statement of some weeks ago in the Congress by a DOD official who stated explicitly that Taiwan is a strategic asset of the United States, with the implication being that it should be kept separate from China because for strategic reasons, we can't allow the Chinese to control it. Now, subsequent to that, Jake Sullivan, in response to a question um, at an event at the Asia Society sort of said, well, that's not really our policy, but he didn't come out and explicitly say, no, we don't regard Taiwan as a strategic asset. In part, I suppose, because he didn't want to be seen to be rebuking a defense, of, defense Department official. But I think that this clarity is necessary in US-China relations today. And by the same token, I think the Chinese need to be clear. They need to reaffirm in their behavior, not just in their statements. They've said many times now that they still want peaceful unification, and that's good. But I think they still also need to show restraint and be willing to say to, say to the Americans, we will certainly show restraint if you show restraint in terms of military activities around Taiwan and other things that we might be doing that could be looked upon by you as provocative. The problem is there's so little, there's so little trust between the two sides. And, and you've got to be able to recognize that there, you need to have some degree of predictability. You don't have to fully trust the other side in order to be able to have a sound relationship. But you do need to have some belief that you can reach understandings with the other side that are credible, and that the other side is not at every single turn lying, stealing, cheating, and trying to undermine you at every turn. I think that tends to be the overriding assumption in many parts of Washington these days. Well, yes, and the trouble is it's both sides which are going down the wrong path. And it's quite, you know, the objections the Chinese have got you made to Speaker Pelosi's trip when in fact, you know, obviously it did get canceled. It may reoccur, but it did get canceled yeah. the first time. This is not the first time that a speaker has gone to Taiwan. So 
is that a new, you know, and obviously the Congress is a is an independent branch and the executive branch could never have committed way back when I was in the State Department to say Congress won't do X, Y, and Z. It would have been impossible. We would have never made that commitment. So it's the Chinese, you know, we fault the United States, but we also need to fault the Chinese government. I, I, I totally agree with that, Steve. I think I think the Chinese have to get a thicker skin on a lot of these things. They have to be not so not so perturbed and, and sort of tit for tat as they see it in responding to some things. I think the recent statement by the Chinese in the Taiwan Strait, although it was, I think, fairly accurate in terms of reflecting the legalities of it, was nonetheless something that they felt they had to say in response to the fact that the United States is ballyhooing its it's uh, steams through the it's it's driving of, of ships through the Taiwan Strait just like it does its freedom of navigation operations. These things used to be done on a low level basis without a lot of publicity, and now they're being done on a very public basis and being responded to in a very public way, which simply just fuels and feeds this greater level of zero sum calculation on both sides. Give us a quick because we're going to run out of time in about two minutes. Uh, a quick summary of your recommendations, which take up the last 10 pages of the paper. Well, yeah, my recommendations are that, first of all, first and foremost, you've got to stop the demonizing rhetoric and exaggeration. You've got to have, you've got to have policies that are based upon accurate, balanced understandings about what the two countries mean for each other. And that means you do acknowledge that, that in the U.S. case, that China is a major factor in some ways, very positive factor in the world today, economically and in other ways. Yes, it is also a negative factor, but it's a mixed picture in many ways. I think the United States has to, the Biden administration in particular, has to define specifically what priorities and goals it desires in each of the different policy areas that it's pursuing with China and deciding internally what's negotiable, what's non-negotiable. Biden and other US officials have said very little about how to forge a stable and productive relationship with Beijing that can avoid trade and tech decoupling, sustain critical joint work on technology issues, strengthen Asian and global economic growth, lessen global warming, et cetera. I mean, where are the concrete proposals um, that are going to be made here where the United States is willing to do X and in return for China? Now, if all these things are going on feverishly behind the scenes privately in these talks between the two leaders, I will be most pleased, but that's not my impression. Um, I think they tend to be exchanging talking points in many cases and talking simply about guardrails, not about getting things done and accomplishing things in, in very concrete ways. I think, as I said before, the US needs to stop its search for military primacy in Asia and start thinking about putting in place a more defensive, denial-oriented force posture in the region that can still protect American and allied interests but do so that is less escalatory, less provocative, and more affordable and more acceptable to allies. I think the United States needs to increase its involvement in regional economic, political, and security structures outside of just the narrow bilateral alliance system. The United States has now proposed several different structures, a new one, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which are, in my view, in part designed to counter the RCEP and to a certain extent, the CPTPP. And that sort of a approach to me just simply reinforces what I see as a kind of division and polarization that's going on between the US and China. The United States won't join the TPP. It's not joining the RCEP. China's a member of RCEP. It might become a member of TPP. 
The United States has not said it, it would welcome China to join the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. So we're building up this steady kind of block structure of either you're with China or you're against China, you're with the US or you're without the US. Many countries wanna be members of all of these structures. And I think the United States should encourage that, but should also look for ways to include the Chinese in this, um, because we don't need to keep on reinforcing these kind of block structures. Um, fourth, I would say that the United States needs to do more to really show that it supports a rules-based order and not just mouthness. Um, the United States has been hypocritical in this regard in some ways, and I think it needs to be needs to develop a better set of rules that better reflect the realities of the world today of a multipolar world that involves mutual accommodation in some areas uh, and is not just simply a purely Western-defined definition of what the rules-based order is. And I could go on to some extent, but I think uh, you're running out of time. I think you've given people a, a, a taste of what is in this terrific must-read monograph, you know, that I think it's so fundamental both in the security area and in every other area that we understand what China is better and what its plans are better and craft rational policies that actually help the American people as opposed to a very narrow slice of the American people. But this has given people a taste of it. It is threat inflation and the Chinese military. And where can people download it? The Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, just Google it and Google my name and it will pop up. Well, it is a terrific, terrific paper. Congratulations for doing it. And thank you for the work that you've done for so many decades. Thank you, Steve. Really appreciate it. Thank you for all the work you do. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.